Welcome to another episode of Good Value by Antipodes. We've become accustomed to global equities moving in one direction, and that's higher. The MSCI World Index returned another 26% in 2021, and once again, North America led the charge. The S&P outperformed the MSCI World XUSA by almost 17%, which is one of the highest relative returns in the last 14 years. And just five stocks, Microsoft, Alphabet, Apple, Nvidia and Tesla, accounted for around half of the S&P's return from April 2021 to the end of last year. But the tide seems to be turning. Some of the best performers of 2021 have been some of the worst performers of 2022 so far. I'm Alison Savas, Client Portfolio Manager, and joining me is Jacob Mitchell, Antipodes CIO, to discuss his views on the recent sell-off in global equities and important trends to watch in 2022. Happy New Year, Jacob, and great to have you back on the podcast. Thanks, Alison. It's great to be here. It's our first podcast of the year, and we're going to discuss what Antipodes sees as the three biggest issues for investors to watch in 2022. But before we get into those, can we start by spending some time discussing what's going on in markets today? We've seen a really sharp sell-off in global equities over the last few weeks. And, you know, as we chat today, global equities are down 5% from the end of last year. Now, the weaker parts of the tech complex, so, you know, that bottom quartile of the NASDAQ, began to sell off towards the end of last year. But that's accelerated into the new year and it's expanded into the more widely held large cap tech names. You know, so, for example, you have Netflix down almost 40 percent this month. You know, Zoom's down another 20 percent. Tesla's down 20 percent. You know, and, you know, these are some some quite large moves. And that's just this month. You know, Zoom has fallen almost 70 percent from its all time highs. You know, Netflix has halved. Tesla's 30 percent lower. Can you take us through what you're seeing in markets? Sure. Quite simply, we're seeing a a repricing of risk as real yields have risen. Real yields and real GDP GDP growth have typically trended together. The real yield on the 10-year US Treasury bond fell to around or just just over negative 1% at the end of last year. If you want to use spot inflation, it was actually negative 5%. Arguably, the bond market was pricing in the worst slowdown in economic activity in 50 years, which was at odds with what we could observe in the real economy. Even with the pace of economic growth slowing, the outlook for activity, along with stickier inflation and Fed tightening, suggested both nominal and real yields were too low. We've been talking about a normalisation in real yields for some time now. That process has now started. And higher yields triggered a sell-off in weaker companies and companies with high starting multiples that all else equal have far greater sensitivity to rising discount rates. We knew a normalization in real yields would be a risk to the growth long duration trade and we've been actively avoiding exposure to expensive growth. Instead, we've been focusing on resilient businesses that are cheap relative to their growth profile So we have been well positioned to weather the storm over the last few weeks and pleasingly across the global portfolios, it's been a strong month for Alpha. Do you think the bulk of the normalisation in real yields is over? And, you know, is the correction that we've seen in global equities over? I mean, that correction we've had over the past few weeks, is that done? Look, despite the moves, I think the growth long duration trade still still looks vulnerable. 
the Fed hasn't changed its rhetoric. Asset purchases will conclude in March and we could see the first rate hike fairly quickly. And the market is now starting to price in up to five rate hikes in 2022. This drawdown feels similar to fourth quarter 2018, where the Fed was tightening into a slowing global economy, which had been led by a Chinese slowdown. The S&P fell around 20% before the Fed pivoted and cut rates to support the equity market. But the Fed not, may not be able to save the day this time around because of inflation. You know, December's headline inflation print was 7%, and even with supply chain bottlenecks easing, we have pent up inflationary pressures in wages, rent and energy prices, which can keep um, inflation elevated for the rest of this year, particularly in the US. There seems to be a mismatch between the supply of labor and the skills that are in demand, which is keeping wage growth elevated and rents are rising because of a property bubble. Sticky inflation may prevent the Fed from reversing monetary policy, even if economic activity is weaker than expected. Look, commentators are correctly calling this, you know, the end of the Fed put. And we have to remember the S&P is still only around 10% off its highs from the end of last year. The long duration trade has borne the brunt of that correction, but we're really only just starting to see the sell off broaden out. You know, retail investors have supported the market in recent sell offs, but retail is more geared than ever. You know, margin debt in the US is close to four and a half percent of GDP which is a 20 year high. If this S&P falls further, retail investors are going to start feeling more pain and at some, po at some point could hit the panic button. But look, even with economic growth slowing in the US, the data suggests the economy is still in, relatively, in a relatively good position. And in the stock market, you know, multiple dispersion remains elevated, which means we're seeing opportunities in both the long and the short side. Our capital preservation process is focused on resilient businesses that can take profitable market share in a high inflation environment. And this is important because corporate profitability will suffer with higher inflation. You want to own market leaders that can protect their profitability by increasing prices or pushing back on supplies. In the long short strategy, we're shorting weak and expensive businesses across, across both the growth and the cyclical buckets. Okay. So now, Jacob, let's move on to Antipodes' top three themes to watch in 2022. We've got it down to rising real yields in the US, the, the potential for China to loosen, and Europe to outperform. Now, first on yields, you've provided a pretty good summary already, but can you just explain the relationship between higher real yields and the stock market? Sure. I mean, as real yields rise, the discount rate used to value a company's future cash flows must also rise, which means today's value of future cash flows falls. All else equal. Higher real yields change the multiple investors are prepared to pay for today's earnings and, and future growth. And it will close this very wide multiple dispersion that's prevalent in markets today. High yields are basically a headwind for long durational growth equities that have little in the way of earnings today, but the potential for a larger payoff in the future. Growth or high multiple stocks have materially outperformed this long cycle, which, you know, but have been hit the hardest just in this recent sell-off. Now, looking at US equities more broadly, they are going to be the most vulnerable to higher real yield environment because valuations are stretched. 
US equities are valued at roughly 20 times on a CAPE, you know, a cyclically adjusted basis using EV to EBITDA as a, just a good measure of underlying earnings and, and easy to compare across different regions and sectors of around 20 times, which is twice the multiple of equities in the rest of the world. In fact, they're, most, they're the most expensive they've been in the last 25 years, US multiples, in an absolute and relative sense. And this is despite very similar earnings growth through time to the rest of the world. The risk reward in US equities looks poor relative to you know, other regions, and we remain underweight the US, particularly in domestically exposed businesses where their competitive position is under threat and valuations remain elevated. Now, can we turn to China? It sounds like 2022 will be a year of transition for the two major global economies, you know, China and the US. You know, we have the US, which is past its peak rate of stimulus-led growth and the Fed is tightening, while China slowed during 2021 due to tight policy and, and you're calling out China will loosen. Uh, can you take us through your thoughts? Yeah, that's right. We're, we're constructive around China's flexibility to loosen. But the timing of policy response is is less certain and you know and china loosening can be meaningful to the global economy so getting the timing right is important you know monetary conditions in china today are are about as tight as they have been in recent history china's credit impulse which is the change of credit relative to gdp has seen the sharpest contraction since the 2008 financial crisis this you know, along with fiscal austerity, tech regulation and property reform have weighed on China's economic growth as strong exports held up the economy. But exports will slow this year as we see a shift in Western consumption away from goods towards services and US or more broadly Western stimulus that has powered Chinese exports starts to fade. China is now at a tipping point where the desire for reform needs to be balanced against economic health. And so at the margin, policy is beginning to loosen. For example, Tier 1 and many Tier 2 cities are stabilising property markets by increasing the speed of mortgage approvals, loosening purchase restrictions and improving developers' access to financing. The credit impulse looks to be stabilising, which has historically been positive for Chinese equities, but rates need to be cut further and the reserve requirement ratio can, further, can cut further to encourage banks to lend. Given the Chinese economy has, you know, slowed considerably, why do you think China has been hesitant to loosen more aggressively to date? Look, we think China's focus has been on, on curbing excesses in the property sector. And also, you know, inflation, you know, measured by PPI, the producer price index, you know, recently hit 13% year on year, which is the highest level in 15 years. PPI will cool as supply chain bottlenecks ease and export growth falls as consumption globally pivots to services. This will give China the scope and impetus to ease more aggressively. There's the incentive of self-preservation for President Xi, the party and the government to support the economy. And look, we know China has this desire to shift from, you know, high growth to high quality growth. So how do you see fiscal stimulus supporting China's broader policy goals? 
Yeah, look, we're not expecting a return to China's traditional infrastructure-led spending model or for the property lever to be pulled aggressively. You know, we expect fiscal stimulus will focus on, on consumption, decarbonisation and reinforcing the, so the social safety net via maintaining you know, affordable housing, education and healthcare. For China to meet its near-term EV goals, you know, increase the mix of renewables and make some investment in the grid, it needs to invest at least 2% of GDP per annum for the next decade. Given the pace of China's economic growth and power consumption, to make a more serious dent in emissions could see investment reach as much as 8 to 9% of GDP per annum. Look, the, the point here is that a minimum incremental investment above the current policy can fill the economic void from a structurally lower property sector. Our third and final theme to watch is Europe. Now, we think Europe is in a sweet spot for 2022. Can you explain why? Firstly, we're expecting a full reopening this year. And with that, we'll see a shift in the consumption mix from goods to services. We're also seeing the early signs of a household credit cycle in the West. And this is the first sign of households re-leveraging since the 2008 financial crisis. And the market isn't really paying a lot of attention to this. Europe is a great way to play both the normalization in services spending and the household re-leveraging. Because of COVID, growth in services has averaged just 1.7% per annum. This is just one third of the pre-COVID trend growth, while goods consumption has grown at around three times the pre-COVID trend level. In a full reopening, growth in goods will slow, but it can be offset by normalization in services consumption and Europe disproportionately benefits from this. For example, Europe generates 10% of GDP from tourism versus just 3% in the US. Now turning to credit, households in the West have shown the first signs of re-leveraging since the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis. Retail loan growth is accelerating, credit cards, consumer loans, mortgages, and we are watching this very closely. A sustained credit cycle has been missing from Western economies for over a decade and would lead to a higher level of medium-term economic growth. In Europe, we get exposure to this normalization in services spending and the potential of a household credit cycle at a much cheaper starting valuation than what we get in the US. Added to this, Europe can disproportionately benefit from a China rebound due to the export connection between the two economies. So Jacob, if I can bring all of this together for our listeners. Now we know the pace of stimulus is slowing in the West and the growth rate of economic activity, you know, is also slowing. But we see, uh, we should see a full reopening this year. Household balance sheets are strong. We have the potential for China to stimulate and the potential for a credit cycle in the West. And we also have emerging capex cycles around decarbonisation and infrastructure that can also support activity. But circling back to the very beginning of our conversation, we're still in an uncertain time. So how are you thinking about risk? Yeah, it's a great, great question. We still see you know, two key tail risks. You, the first one is a global economic growth shock or disappointment. And the second one is an ongoing inflation shock. An economic growth shock could come from a hard landing in China if easing is delayed or too gradual. And this would coincide with a deceleration in the West as stimulus recedes. 
the Fed tightening into a slowing growth could compound the problem. This would be a challenging environment for cyclical equities and, and weaker companies more generally, or, or what you might describe as classic value traps. And the second tail risk is the ongoing inflation shock from a structurally higher or more volatile inflation led by the US. Discount rates would have to continue to rise, and that's going to be difficult for high make it difficult for high multiple companies or growth traps. The combination of both, an economic and growth shock, is, is really the stagflation scenario. And it, it would be a very difficult environment for equities and could lead to a highly correlated drawdown. So as I mentioned earlier, we continue to focus on resilient market leaders that can take profitable share against a backdrop of higher inflation, whether they are cyclical or secular growth businesses. We always run our, our portfolios with a capital preservation mindset reflected in discipline around valuations. We're also building out our exposure to gold and US defense stocks, which are a cheap tail risk and geopolitical hedge and have interesting stock specific investment cases. Despite the move in markets, and it's really worth laboring this point, Multiple dispersion is still very high, which means we are finding opportunities on both the long and short side. That's a great summary. So, so thanks for that, Jacob. Now, before we wrap up, can you give me one investment idea that you think is going to be a stock to watch in 2022? Sure. A company we really like is Seagate, uh, a leading provider of hard disk drive storage, which um, we think is an underappreciated part of the connected economy as the world becomes you know, more data intensive. Hard disk drives are largely a two-player market. Seagate and Western Digital control 80% of the market. And then you have Toshiba as a very marginal third player. Hard disk drives went through a prolonged period of weak performance as other forms of data storage like NAND and flash drives took market share in PCs and laptops due to faster speeds. PCs and laptops were the largest end market for the hard disk drive makers, so losing market share crimped both Seagate and Western Digital's revenue. For example, Seagate's revenue fell around 30% over the 10 or so years to June 2021. While demand for PCs and laptops was shrinking, data center demand, both hyperscalers and enterprise, has been growing at a very high clip. Data center will account for the majority of Seagate's revenue from next year. So we have a company which is pivoting from zero growth business to, that, to one that will see revenues grow in a range of three to 10% per annum. On top of this return to industry revenue growth, the profitability of the business is inflecting with operating margins rapidly improving on a trajectory that we think has further runway in years to come. As demand from PCs and laptops collapsed, the industry was plagued with overcapacity, which hurt profitability. Capacity is once again tightening thanks to rising demand and the commentary from both Seagate and Western Digital suggests we'll see better pricing and supply discipline through this cycle. Both players are signaling that they are prioritizing returns as a functional duopoly would. We see Seagate's earnings growing at around 10 to 15% per annum the company is valued at just 10 times forward earnings, which is a very attractive multiple given secular growth trends around compute and data storage, improving competitive dynamics between the two leading players, the quality of, the under, of Seagate's underlying business and the company's growth profile. 
Jacob, thanks for your time today. You've given us a lot to think about. Cheers, Alison. As always, it's been a pleasure. Investors can gain exposure to the Antipodes Global portfolios via our unlisted trusts. And the Antipodes Global Long Portfolio is also available through AGX1, which is our ASX-listed quoted managed fund. For more information on Antipodes or our views, please head to our website, antipodespartners.com, or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. And remember to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening, so you get an alert as soon as our next episode goes live in a few weeks. Please remember this content is general information only. It is not advice of any kind and doesn't take into account your personal financial situation, objectives or needs. You should seek professional advice before making any financial decisions.